Well, this morning we are going to be uh, having our second FAQ Sunday, right? Frequently Asked Questions Sunday. And so a few times a year, I want to break from whatever book of the Bible we're studying, whatever series we're in the midst of, to pause and address questions that come from the congregation. And this morning, we're going to look at a question that was submitted a few weeks ago, and it's a little bit of a doozy. I'll acknowledge that up front, but I'm glad that this person asked this question because I think it's a question that a lot of us have, and it allows the opportunity for us as followers of Jesus Christ to be fully present in this particular cultural moment that we find ourselves in. Here's the question. How do I keep from worrying over the stats of COVID? And then the questioner goes on, or even worrying about everyday things that I have no control over. So how do I avoid worrying over the presence of this virus? And just in general, how do I avoid worrying overall? I, I, I think this is probably, if I'm speculating here, but I think this is a question that many of us can probably resonate with and relate to. Because we are finding ourselves in what may possibly be the most anxious generation. Studies suggest that Generation Z, so Generation Z are those who are between the ages of 9 and 24. 70% of Generation Z across all genders, races, socioeconomic levels report that anxiety and depression are significant problems with their peers. 70% of their peers. On top of that, we are living in the midst of a global pandemic, the likes of which has not been seen in over a century. So there are so many internal and external situations that fuel our anxiety. So this morning, I want to address that question, but I want to do so backwards. I want to first start by discussing what Jesus has to say about anxiety seeing how the gospel continues to be a relevant reminder to us. And, and then at the end, I want to circle back to COVID, maybe think about that like a case study, and discuss some theological and practical elements of assuaging our fears and anxieties as it pertains to this virus that seems to be in every corner of our globe. So if you'd like to follow along with me, you can pull out your Bibles, your Bible apps. We're going to be looking at Matthew 25. So this is a portion of scripture comes from the Sermon on the Mount, which is a really just really long sermon that Jesus gave, spans three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew 5 through 7. But the passage that we're going to look at specifically, beginning at 25, Jesus is directly addressing the problem of anxiety and worry in our lives. Some of it's going to sound familiar because some of it's going to be similar to the chorus or I don't know, maybe not the chorus, one of the bridges, tags, I don't know these musical terms anymore, but some of what we just sang, those of you that were here last week, I referred to this passage in my message about giving, but let's take a closer look at it this morning. So if you want to follow along, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So I've got kind of three brief scans that I want to go over on this passage. And so first, I want to look at the superficial reading. What most often jumps out at folks when we read this is the comparison of our lives to that of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. Jesus is using these flora and fauna to illustrate why we shouldn't be anxious or worried. Jesus states that if God takes care of them, then surely he's going to take care of us. This principle is founded on a baseline belief that God loves us, that he's going to provide for us. But I ask, do we actually believe that God has our best interest at heart or that he's intimately involved with our lives? I know many Christians who live in a state of insecurity with God. They they don't know where they measure up in the way that he views them. When they pray, it's it's to beg God to give them a passing glance. And their posture, when they operate out of this, is based around an incomplete understanding of the gospel. Now, this is one of the reasons that this gospel-centered life stuff that we've been looking at for the past two, three months is so important, is because it's so easy for me to forget that God is actively caring for me right now. It's easy to think that we're going through life with God just kind of popping in every now and then to check in on us. And so as a result, when it feels like we're in a situation of life where it feels like the roof is caving in, my response, my first response is often to try to bring this to God's attention. Like like he's away on vacation, that he doesn't know what's going on, that I've got to leave a dozen voicemails to just get a call back from him. But what the gospel teaches us, what it reminds us is that we are not orphans. God is not a social worker that just checks in on us monthly to assess our status. God is our active parent. He is invested in the moment-by-moment aspects of our lives. And that means that God is acutely aware of our needs in every situation. And this is the framework that Jesus is operating out of when he says this. If God cares for the birds that are expendable and and these plants that are burned up, fuel for the oven without a second thought, how much more so will he be invested in our lives 
which are precious to him. Remember, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God loves us with an unconditional love that is not based upon what we do. There is nothing that you or I can do to get God to love us more. And conversely, and sometimes more uh, comforting to me, there is nothing that you or I can do to make him love us less. That is the faith. Yes, that's the hallelujah for sure. Because I can't screw it up. Because the foundation of faith is that we trust that God loves us and that he knows what he is doing in our lives. Think about it this way, right? We've got Port Authority buses, Pat buses all over the city of Pittsburgh. Those things are like monstrosities. I give so much props to the drivers because I would hit so many things on my route if I were in charge of that. Right? To drive one of those vehicles, one of those monstrosities, requires finesse. You need to be fully aware of the, the size of the vehicle that you're driving. Now, how many of you, when you're riding the bus, give a thought to every twist and turn that the bus takes? Many of you are probably oblivious to the outside world while you sit on the bus. You're listening to a podcast, you're scrolling Facebook, you're playing Candy Crush. You're sitting and resting, not anxious about, is this bus going to hit the car in front of me or is it going to sideswipe a building? I guess it'd have to be pretty far off the road to hit a building, but you get the point. You're able to do that because you trust the bus driver. You trust that the bus driver knows what she is doing. You trust that she has been trained well. And so you don't need to anxiously look out the window, worrying that you're going to hit something with every turn. Now, that bus driver is capable, but she doesn't know anything about you. She's just doing her job. There is no affection between the two of you. How much more will God, who is also capable, but who loves you deeply, how much more will he look after you and care for you? Jesus is saying, sit in that, rest in that love that he will provide. Don't be anxious looking out the window as God drives the bus of our lives, worrying about every twist and turn. Instead, relax in his love. But let's take a step closer, a, a little deeper in the wisdom of what Jesus says. Check out verses 27 and 34. Verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. All right, so we just looked at Jesus illustrating what it means to positively trust God as a remedy for anxiety. And here Jesus is spelling out the futility of worry. First in 27. We saw that in the economy of life, worry is not able to add anything of value to us, right? How many of you, by worrying, have ever been able to add anything to your life? When has worry ever contributed to the quality and the quantity of your life? I'm willing to go out on a limb and say, not at all. Specifically, the quality of life, because worry seems to bring that down pretty significantly. Now, for the record here, what's described here is not all anxiety, but what I'm going to say, what I'm going to call disproportionate anxiety. Now, if you study the, the, if you study psychology, the subject of psychology, you know that anxiety is kind of shaped like a bell curve, right? 
a little bit of anxiety is actually a good thing in our lives. If you sit down to take a test in your class with no anxiety, that's, a bad, that's actually a bad thing, and it will negatively affect your performance. Because right? a touch of anxiety makes us more alert, makes us more productive. So what I'm referring to here, when, when, when Jesus talks about worry and anxiety, I believe he's referring to this anxiety that is debilitative towards us. The stuff that keeps us lying awake at night because your mind is just ruminating on it. The stuff that keeps us from interacting with our friends because we are so focused on whatever roadblock is in front of us. I think that's what Jesus is saying is not going to deliver you. It's not able to give you anything that, like God can. So don't let anxiety be that thing that you give your attention, your worship to. One of Elizabeth's favorite quotes that I think is relevant here comes from the sage Newt Scamander, wizard from Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And he says this, which I think kind of is in, in the theme of, he's channeling some Jesus here. My philosophy, he says, is that worrying means that you suffer twice. What worry's like in our lives? But there, verse 34 provides another avenue to the negative pursuit of worry. Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow because today's got enough for us to focus on. I was reading some interpretations of this passage that I found quite intriguing because there are a number of people that use this to highlight that worry, they make the argument that worry is the antithesis of faith. Because faith is a trust, an action in the present. Faith comes because we look back. We remember what God has done in the past. How he has showed himself to be faithful and trustworthy through past action. We remember in the past, but we also hope. We expectantly wait for God's promises, which are assured to be revealed in the future. We remember in the past, and we hope in the future, but we have faith in the present. You and I have no authority over what will happen tomorrow. It's outside of our control. And I think Jesus reminds us to be present in the moment. But this passage has one more item of significance that I think is buried in the midst of everything else we've looked at. And I think this is Jesus, as usual, being ahead of his time. Modern psychology has a practice that is called replacement therapy. The process where you take abnormal thoughts or behaviors. When I remember hearing about this, it was like changing the tapes of your mind. I don't think that tracks anymore. Nobody has cassette tapes. Nobody even seems to have CDs anymore. Change those MP3s of your mind and replace them with healthier ones. Let me give you an example. Let's say every time you make a mistake, a sound clip begins to play in your head. You say, man, I am so stupid. I am an idiot. I always screw things up. Anyone relate to that? Have things like that that play through your mind? That's a destructive loop that begins to reinforce a negative opinion of yourself. So a therapist might encourage you that when you make a mistake, to acknowledge the mistake, but to give yourself grace. To instead of say like, man, I'm such an idiot, to say, man, I made a mistake. No one's perfect. I can move past this. You're not just trying to leave behind the negative and unwanted behavior, but you are intentionally replacing it with something positive to fill that void and take its place. 
Look at verse 33. I think this is Jesus' replacement therapy for us, right? Because he lists a number of things that we shouldn't be anxious for. Don't be anxious for what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. Don't be anxious about any of these things. He's reminding us that we are often focused on things that are outside of our control. But then in verse 33, he gives us the positive to focus on. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. Don't focus on all the cares of the world that you can't control, but instead focus on the one who is in control of the doing. Focus on the places where you can see God's provision, where you can see his faithfulness, where you can see his movement in our lives and the lives of those around us. See where he is present. Focus on those things. Now, before we get into COVID as a case study of anxiety, I want to bring up one more passage this morning from the book of James. And I, I want to share this passage because I, I want to make sure p- part of what I want to do is we consider worry, right? As a response to worry, often what we do is we try to double down on control. I'm anxious about this, and so I'm going to work really hard out of my power to, to absolve that anxiety, to make that anxiety go away. But I think that comes from an an incorrect foundational belief that we have control over our lives. Because I would argue we have far less control than we think we do. So James chapter 4 says this, verses 13 to 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Right? So J- James is, is kind of quoting these, these figurative people who are making their five-year plan. They're deciding what they're going to do today, tomorrow, and over the next year. He continues, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, James says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, as we consider as we begin to consider this headspace that the virus, this pandemic has taken up in our lives, I want to make sure that I'm clear in saying that even trying, even trusting in God and trying to live a worry-free life is not a formula for an easy life. The scriptures never promise us comfort, health, prosperity, or even safety. As James rightly points out, there is nothing wrong with trying to set and make your five-year plan, but we need to remember, we need to hold in tension with that, that we are never promised tomorrow. We live under the Lord's will, and we remember that there's nothing that we can do to force or manipulate His hand to act in a way that we want Him to. He will always act in ways that are beneficial to us, that advance his glory, that make his fame known, but that doesn't mean that it's always going to feel nice when it happens. So let's take a dive and consider how we as Christians can persevere through this virus for our mental health and for our love of our neighbor. So COVID is here for the time being, and you know, we are living in the midst of this pandemic that has far-reaching implications for our lives. Folks in our communities have suffered job loss. 
There's been food insecurity. Schedules have been turned upside down. We've been seeing supply chain shortages and inflation that is unprecedented in the last decade. We've been separated from loved ones. Some of us have lost friends and family to the virus. So how do the words of Jesus, to not be anxious about anything, translate to this pervasive pandemic? For starters, I think we need to heed the word of, words of James regarding our ability to plan for our own futures. We cannot control the outcome. Let's not say, I'm doing this or that, but if the Lord wills, we need to remember that all of this is in the Lord's hand, and that's the place that we need to start from. If we trust in God's affection for us, I think that means we walk a tightrope with how we handle the virus, kind of two sides. First, I don't think we ought to let this virus control us. I don't think we should have disproportionate fear regarding a potential infection. Because an unhealthy fear attempts to control our lives by overly focusing on risk management. It's not healthy for us to completely close ourselves from all relationships in order to mitigate that risk. The truth is, is that risk is everywhere. We are not guaranteed tomorrow, right? You or I could walk out of this building today, or if you're streaming from home, you could walk out of your house today, and on your trip home or your trip to the grocery store, you could get hit by a car, and you could die in a car accident. I know that might sound grim, but the truth is there is risk in everything we do. Trying to control risk and manage our own safety can be debilitating. I think we need to have a measure of trust that God knows what He's doing and that He cares for us. That might reveal itself in God protecting us supernaturally from the virus, but it also might mean that we get the virus. But it means that we trust God's hand in this and we do not allow the virus to control us. But at the same time, trusting God also involves sober-minded judgment. In light of not being able, you know, not being guaranteed safety by God, I think it's important for us to, to find responsible ways, not motivated by fear, but responsible ways that we can care for ourselves and care for others. We can't control the outcome, but how but we can participate in good faith measures to protect ourselves and others. Last week I was listening to uh, one of my regular podcasts and they had on their show the head of the NIH, the National Institute of Health, Francis Collins. Some of you may have heard of Francis Collins before. Uh, I mean, he, is, he is a smart man, but he is a man of deep faith. And he seeks significant intersection between faith and science in an age where much of our population seems to think that they are mutually exclusive or at least antagonistic towards one another. Francis Collin, a few decades ago, was the head of the team that mapped, it was called the Human Genome Project, mapped the genetics, where the genes fall on our chromosomes. And about 12 years ago, he was appointed to the NIH, which is a federal 
medical agency with the intent to, and this comes right from their website, their, their purpose is to make important discoveries that improve health and save lives. Their goal as an institution is to use science and medicine to make our lives better. Now, as I was listening to it, it's, it's, it was on the Holy Post, uh, if you want to listen to it. I think it was two episodes ago, three if you include their French Friday, but that's a whole other thing. Let's not go down that rabbit trail. The second half of his interview, Phil Vischer, uh, the second half of the episode, Phil Vischer is interviewing him, and it was really fascinating to listen to. But what he lamented on the podcast was that, you know, not only has this virus been made into a political uh, issue, um, which he, he argues shouldn't have been political to begin with, and I, I'm, you know, there's a degree of discomfort in me bringing this up at all because I don't want to be seen as, you know, trying to catch, put myself in one camp or the other. Because the health and wellness of our world should not be something controversial. Now, as an expert in the field, Collins lamented the amount of misinformation regarding the virus, from its origins to its mitigation, but specifically, he's lamenting that a disproportionate amount of this is coming from the church, is coming from Christians. Right? We follow Jesus Christ, who, the one who self-identified as the way, the truth, and the life. Right? God is truth with a capital T, and we as his followers ought to be a people bringing his truth to bear to the world. Now, I know there are many in our communities that have a lot of suspicion for government in these types of situations. You know, I've heard everything from distrust that, like, big pharma is involved to Bill Gates and ridiculous conspiracy theories that this is just a, a manufactured crisis to microchip the population. I mean, there's a, there's, <laughs> I remember talking to Jason about this early on, and it's like, I, this is a tangent, but talking about, like, that microchip, I hope that's not something that any of us are spreading. Because, like, if you, if, have you ever seen, like, a dog get microchipped? The size, this is what Jason and I were talking about, like the size of the needle that is used, because a microchip is like the size of a grain of rice. If you go to get a vaccination shot, they are not using, like you would know if they were using a needle big enough for that. So just like from purely empirical stats, we should be able to, as Christians, recognize the, the falsity in this and not be propagating it out there. But, but I recognize in this age where we have these facts, alternative quote-unquote facts circulating us, it can be really hard to know what is right. But personally, I listen and trust Anthony Fauci for a couple reasons. One is he's a lot smarter than I, at least in, in this area. He studied this a lot more than I have. I have a little bit of a background in science, but he knows far more. But beyond that, Anthony Fauci is listening to his boss, who happens to be the head of the NIH, Francis Collins. And I trust Francis Collins that he is doing his best to listen to the truth that is out there because he is following in the footsteps of his boss, namely Jesus Christ. Following the lead of Collins, in situations like this, I think we need to respond to faith and science. Science and faith, whatever order you want to say those in. Because science is amoral. It doesn't ultimately tell us if something is good or bad. It presents facts. And the science says that wearing masks can help mitigate the spread of COVID. 
The science says that vaccines can prevent infections or in the case of breakthrough infections can lessen the severity of those symptoms. When I had COVID, I was grateful to have the vaccine because my symptoms were far less than a lot of folks that I have heard. This is what science gives us, but faith gives us a framework to interpret those truths. Faith reminds us that our first object of affection ought to be the Lord God Almighty, but a close second is our neighbor. Faith tells us that we have been granted radical, even ludicrous freedoms in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But faith reminds us that we are to restrain those freedoms when it comes to loving our neighbors. Faith reminds us that while certain elements of COVID mitigation might be inconvenient, we have a responsibility to care for our neighbors the best way that we can in this mess. Faith also reminds us that we aren't guaranteed tomorrow, but that while we still call it today, our responsibilities are to love God and to love people. One of the beautiful things that I find from the legacy of church history is that they did not consider, first and foremost, the benefits of their well-being. They were sacrificial. They gave of themselves for the goodness of others. In April of 2020, Time Magazine wrote an article highlighting the church's historic responses in situations like this. And listen to what they said. Speaking of the ancient church, and I quote, This mattered because the ancient, this is you know, what the church did, mattered because the ancient Mediterranean world was a world of disease. For example, the Ant- Antonine, Antonine, I'm probably mispronouncing, the Antonine plague, perhaps smallpox, ravaged populations from the Tigris to the Rhine during the late 2nd century E.C. E.C. C.E., excuse me, which is their way of saying A.D. While the plague of Cyprian, measles perhaps, killed thousands in those same regions towards the end of the 3rd century C.E. Generally, polytheistic philanthropy was focused on endowments and monuments with little care for suffering body, right? The pagan world didn't really care about suffering bodies, right? The wealth they wanted to use just for name recognition going forward, building monuments, statues to themselves and gods and goddesses. Christianity offered something different with caritas. Scholars have shown that a large part of Christianity's attraction in the Roman world was that it cared for the welfare of people who were suffering. That's the legacy of the church. Is it our legacy today? Are we known as a people who care for the suffering of others? Or are we more interested in building up our brands, building name recognition? Fighting for God, absolutely, trying to spread the word of God, but oftentimes doing so as a result of building ourselves up in the process. Christianity was marked by what the ancients called, I use that word, caritas. It's a Latin word for charity, right? A divine love, a love for all. At great risk for themselves, they cared for the needs of others around them. They modeled the same sacrificial love and care they found in the ministry of Jesus Christ. I know this started as a way to reduce anxiety, 
But one major way that we can reduce anxiety in regard to something like COVID is by taking responsibility and participating in what God might be doing to bring healing, both naturally and supernaturally. Now, there's a, there's a modern parable that I think, it, some of you may have heard it before, but I think it illustrates this well. Right? This balance between what does it mean to trust God in the supernatural, but also see and trust Him in the natural. And it says, this is what the, the par- modern parable says, a ferocious storm swept through a town, and in the aftermath, a man climbs onto his roof to escape the floodwaters. As he sits there, someone in a canoe comes by and offers to carry him to safety. No thanks. The man replies, God will save me. The man paddles off and the waters continue to rise. Shortly afterwards, someone in a boat pulls up to offer help. No thank you, the man says again. God will deliver me. The waters rise higher. Finally, a Coast Guard helicopter appears and someone with a megaphone offers to drop a ladder. No thank you, a man says for the final time. I prayed for God to save me. The helicopter flies off the waters engulf the root, and the man drowns. When the man arrives in heaven, he asks in confusion, what happened, God? Why didn't you rescue me? God replies, I sent you a canoe, a boat, and a helicopter. What more did you want? Now, I just want to suggest that perhaps, take this home, take it with a grain of salt, but take this home with you and think about it. Perhaps, the expediency that this vaccine arrived. How quick. I mean, this is the quickest a vaccine has been able to come together. Could be a conspiracy, or there could be something else behind it. Perhaps this seemingly miraculous technology of mRNA, which does not change your DNA, just for the record there, just perhaps with the deep man of faith at the helm of this project, maybe... God has been at work in the seemingly natural process for our benefit. Perhaps. Let's finish where we started, with the words of comfort from Jesus. God cares for the birds of the air. He cares for the plants of the ground. Does he not also care for us? And I would argue this is no different for COVID. Because God is at work, and God cares for us. We're not promised tomorrow, but we are promised a God who walks with us every step of the way. Whether we're on the mountaintop or whether we're in the deep valley, God is near us. We can't add anything to our lives by worrying about the virus. In fact, it's probably going to diminish our, our quality of life if all, you, if all we do is worry about it. Again, you know, that bell curve of anxiety, a little bit's a good thing. We don't want to be reckless in this. But God cares about the fears and anxieties that are in our hearts. We can bring them to him. COVID's not going to be here forever. COVID, I can guarantee you, will not be in the coming kingdom. I feel like I can say that with certainty. This is a a once-in-a-century outbreak. But in the midst of this, may we use the same tools in the toolbox that Jesus promised. Resting in the love of God and focusing, right? That replacement therapy. Don't focus on all the negative stuff that's out there, but focus on the kingdom of God at hand. At hand, not at hand, sorry.
focusing on the kingdom of God in our midst. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes it's hard for us to know what you're doing in the world. Many times it's hard for us to know what you're doing in the world. There are things that I don't have answers to that are above the pay grade that I have. And while I can't say those things with with any degree of certainty, Lord, what I do know is that you've promised to be with us. Jesus, as you gave that great commission to go to the ends of the earth, proclaiming your name, you said that you would be with us every step of the way. Lord, as those of us who are worried about this virus, those of us who grieve because we have lost loved ones, Lord, we know that you grieve with us. Lord, we know that death is not the way it's supposed to be. But don't allow us to be controlled by this virus. May we respond responsibly, but also respond in faith. Trusting you to provide a way forward for us. Thank you for walking with us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.